Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello there, Steve. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Matt Longley joins us for this episode, which has a classic setup of a band forming at university, a bunch of friends and new acquaintances getting together to jam, write songs and do the odd gig, and it becomes the start of a lifetime of friendship. Matt's story rolls out in a really enjoyable way, doesn't it? It does. It's it's unlike anything we've got on, had on the on the show so far. It's full of shining stories told with great gusto and and great humour as well. I think. Yeah, it's funny that we haven't added an episode like this because it's such an atypical kind of story of a band in the UK, you know, <laughs> formed in university or college or that that sort of early period of someone's life, and we haven't really hit on that yet. No, no, no. If, and the conversation felt very familiar for that reason, didn't it? Like you could be in, embedded in any converse, number of conversations that you've had yourself over the years. And um, But yeah, you're right. It's surprising that we haven't had that up till this point, but it was a joy to, to finally get into that, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah. Really good. And I love the descriptions of the stories which stem from spending time in rich bitch studios because um, rehearsal studios are such unique places, right? And if you spend a lot of time in a particular one, it can hold special significance for you. And obviously I'm thinking about survival studios at this point. Yeah, yeah. Lots of lots of classic stories for us from that point. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and um, and Matt brought some great stories in, you know, some that have been included in his in his blog and uh, and others that he, he brought to the party. They were, yeah, they were lovely moments, weren't they? Definitely, because we haven't done that either. We haven't really talked very much with people about their experiences of of rehearsing. And um, and it's I mean, it's the thing that you do the most of really, isn't it? When you getting ready to record or do, do gigs. It's like, it's your day, it's your bread and butter. It's how the band comes together, getting together as often as you can to rehearse. Yeah. For some people, for some people it's all there, but they never <laughs> take it out of the rehearsal studio. It's, it's hours and hours locked away in a dark box, often on hot summer's days. Oh, always. Yeah. You know, smoke, smoke filled rooms. <laughs> um, yeah. And for us, well, I don't know how we made it back from some of those rehearsals. Oh, from many of those rehearsals, really alive. But for, fortunately, we did. I'm just glad that I was not driving at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I unfortunately I was driving, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it's a conversation for another time. What's the statute of limitations on that sort of stuff? I don't... <laughs> you could be in a world of trouble, mate. Yeah. Here comes the long arm of the law. <laughs> So, uh, well, Matt and I connected around the work of his organization, Six Feet from the Spotlight, which is a fantastic initiative about which he speaks really enthusiastically in this episode. It's an impressive and important thing he's building, isn't it? It really is. I think it's a, it's an example of how as an individual you can choose to act and act upon and respond to, you know, a, a, a tragic event, not necessarily for Matt, but, a, you know, a response to a tragic event in a person's life um, for the benefit of the greater good in such a special way, you know, really, really going with something on that experience and, and doing something so hugely innovative. And they, although when you look at it now, it's like, you do think, why hasn't someone done that before? But thank God that Matt is one of those individuals that has taken that idea forward. Um, I hope that people spend some time 
after listening to this interview with Matt to go off and really, really take some time to look into the six foot from the spotlight stuff is very, very impressive. It isn't is, it? and it was sort of you're you're absolutely right because Matt and his uh, colleagues at Six Feet from the Spotlight are, are spearheading something which you can very easily see in five, ten years time, just as the norm that's embedded into the sorts of spaces that he's working in just that is just what happens and you and he's kind of leading the charge on that you, you can i mean i really believe that that's what it that's what will transpire from the work he's doing and uh, all power to him and, and the folks that he's working with because it is necessary yeah and he he saw he saw it as part of a, a a bigger wider sort of change didn't he that takes in stuff like black lives matter and though it doesn't it, it kind of parallels that kind of journey stuff that is very much about challenging pre-existing culture like you say, you like you say, it is things are heading in that direction necessarily. Yes. So it, you probably won't see that coming from the beginning of the episode, but it it kind of emerges really nicely out of this lovely creative time that Matt spent. And but but within all of that stuff, and his his friendships, they're lifelong friendships, aren't they? And 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 that story emerges really nicely. So you can kind of see where the where that sits with him as a person. You can, you can. It, it evolves very, very naturally, as you said, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, our thanks to Matt for coming on the show and sharing his stories with us. Um, if hearing Matt speak has dislodged some music-making memories and you have a demo you'd be interested in sharing on our show, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, okay, so here's episode 22 of Songs from a Padded Envelope with Matt Longley. Hi, I'm Matt Longley. I'm the drummer in a band called Pelican Sparks, and we're going to talk about a song called Can't You See. Thanks for coming on the show, Matt. When you sent the song across, it was accompanied by a blog post uh, that you'd written about Pelican Sparks. Would you mind if I read the first few lines? No, please do. Please do. Okay. <clears throat> Just imagine you're at Birmingham University reading chemical engineering. What's that, I hear you ask? Lectures are plentiful, unintelligible, you're 30 tutorials behind, and it's still only the first term. <laughs> Everyone else is reading classics or history with a maximum of three lectures and one tutorial a year and spending most of their time in the OVT or the Brook, spending their grants on copious quantities of booze. You're looking at a 2-2 max and a job designing heat exchanges that don't work for the rest of eternity, interspersed with the excitement of making Finbar Saunders-type comments about the size of your column or fluid exchange on a fluidized bed. What should you do? Knuckle down and get through the tutorials? Buy an alarm clock and get to lectures? No way. Photocopy the lecture notes and form a shit rock band. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, first question yeah. for you. How did you go about forming a shit rock band and how successful were you in getting people to buy into that dream? <laughs> well, we'd, the, the, the part, part of the reason was we'd, I went around it because we'd had another band um, initially. When I first started at Birmingham University, I was in Lake Hall. This was late 1980s, 88, 87, 88, something like that. Um, and we formed a band um, with a couple of guys who we call Bang Around. Um, and I, I have no idea why we called it Bang Around. It's one of those things, probably something to do with trying to be kind of innuendos and things like that. Um, <laughs> sure. we, there, was, there was a guy, Gareth Venables, who could sing and play piano. Um, I'd kind of played drums a little bit uh, and had a, had a few lessons. That was my, my claim to 
being able to play drums. Um, a guitarist who who wasn't too bad, um, and a bass player who was brilliant. He he could play uh, play by ear. Um, he's another Welsh lad. He could play by ear. Um, basically, you'd play him a song once, and he'd go that well. The chords to that are F, C sharp major, D, whatever, and he'd and then he'd play it on the bass. Um, so he was he was fantastic. So he was the guy who kind of held it together. Um, and we did we started doing covers. Um, and things like that so uh, bang around played what what was called live at lake so lake hall had a um, a kind of um, open mic night i suppose but it was kind of staged a little bit uh, and bang around made their um, their first ever appearance um, at live at lake in 1988 it snowed all day um, adam who's the guitarist had been on a bender with the rugby club all day <laughs> which which really helped so we started off we played i will follow um which uh got introduced as sunday bloody sunday and then we changed it to i will follow then we played a song by the smithereens i think it was um called uh, behind the wall of sleep which went down okay and then we tried to play rain so um the way adam was playing it it was fifth chords power chords at the top of the guitar and then you go into the into the billy duffy riff so he played the power chords to start the song off went into the riff and his guitar was out, way out of tune so everybody else is playing straight we can't hear anything because we've got no monitors um and then everybody's laughing and we're going oh what's going on and i'm carrying on um <laughs> I've got blisters on my hands because I've hardly played the drums at all. So and they're popping, they're popping. So there's blood on my face. Um, <laughs> a complete disaster. Adam then treads on his guitar cable um, and pulls the pulls it out of the out of the amp. Um, so we've got no guitarist for a bit, which is actually a blessing. And then we carry on. Um, we've all had a few pints, obviously. Um, finish off with um, "Born to Be Wild" and then disappear. And it, the the crowd are in absolute raptures in stitches. They're going, that was brilliant. How did you how did you make it sound so shit? <laughs> <laughs> so um so anyway so so we the, the guys actually recorded it. So we ended up with a tape of Bang Around Live at Lake, which is absolutely which is awful and became kind of legendary in um in the hall for a, for a few months. <laughs> not, it's, it's not anymore. I think I have still got a recording of it somewhere, but uh, I try not to listen to it. Um so we then um we there were a couple of other guys and we decided when we'd moved out of hall um and we were doing chemical engineering that we ought to just go and as a because chemical engineering is is 30 lectures or 30 hours of lectures a week you're quite stressed just to get away from it is to go and practice and try and play some music as a stress release um so there are a couple of lads on the course with me who were doing who did my design project with me actually um one called uh ditto who was the keyboard player um his real name's andrew smith and bizarrely when we were introducing each other at hall in the first place uh andrew smith was was stood next to him as well so he just said ditto when he when it came to announce his name so he's known as ditto forever um so ditto joined us um and paul who was the guitarist was another chemical engineer um and paul could actually play guitar quite well ditto was a i think he was grade eight classically trained pianist anyway so he was he was okay on it he was all right on the keyboard and me and then we just said we decided we couldn't actually play other people's songs so we wanted to record our own so that's where we that's where pelican sparks came from and the the name came from i think we were sitting there's a story in there about um ditto's dad 
giving us a pile of port for his 21st and I think we drunk about three or four bottles of it and one of the guys was reading the newspaper and the, the headline of the local paper was Pelican Sparks um, controversy over uh, positioning in road or something like that so somebody said you call yourself Pelican Sparks that was it um, so we, we, we tried to hide it as PS most of the time but uh, yeah Pelican Sparks was the name that came up <laughs> So you were you were quite quickly getting into like writing then because you said you weren't playing other people's songs. So you quite quickly Pelican Spark started writing. Yeah, we started writing. So um, I wrote some some things um, despite not really being able to play things. I could put on a keyboard and just by ear try and work something out and get three or four chords together. Um, Paul would then write something with the guitar. Um, properly and we'd, we'd pull lyrics together and, and write about situations we were in so the first song was about some one of the one of the guys fancying a girl in hall and not getting anywhere with her and and the, and the story behind all of that um and then another song about somebody somebody else fancying somebody else and then there was a there was a song about um our roadie dave he was wild but he wasn't he was he was a really boring guy so we called him <laughs> <laughs> and then, so yeah so we set about we we started writing that and that was the first sort of foray into into any of us really writing stuff um and then it carried on over the years um and you, you get better and better at it as you do it um and i learned i eventually learned how to play the guitar a little bit um and bass and things like that so you, you kind of work out what the chord structure should be and um change them around because you try and learn by ear as well because you're not if you're not trained you just you pick up what chord sequences or what chords sound good together and and uh, maybe that works and it doesn't work and you carry on like that so yeah we started recording writing our own stuff <laughs> and when you when you first started bringing those initial songs together what were you hoping to do musically i think we all you always think that you can write a really good song and then you'll be able to go and play it live or record it and um, somebody would want to listen to it somebody else would want to listen to it and i think that's where we wanted to go um when you start doing it and it comes out and it, you you even i think you even li listen to it and play it back and there's there's just something about three or four of you playing together that um makes it makes something you've if you play it yourself, if you play three or four, you play together, all of a sudden you hear different nuances and things together. And you always think, well, we could do something with that. Um, we never had a singer, which was the big problem, I think, with any kind of rock or um, voc any band, pop band. You've got to have somebody who can really sing um, and get to get that song across. But um, we we always enjoyed listening back to the tapes. We'd play things um in when we eventually went did go into studios and rehearsal rooms and you'd play it back and you'd listen oh yeah that sounds quite good actually that bit <laughs> and it was it was yeah. literally three or four three or four seconds of something would be really good or um something would come together and you'd think right okay well we'll try and build on that next time we go in um and pick it together but it was it, yeah it's all that was why you were doing it is uh I think we were doing it for fun, really, and stress release. But you kind of always think in the background, yeah, we might one day somebody might listen to this song and like it. And I think you you're looking for that a bit of adulation, but I don't think it ever came with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said you when you eventually ended up in in rehearsal rooms. But so where were you rehearsing to start with? Um, we used to rehearse in um, people's bedrooms in houses on in uh, in Birmingham, Tinmouth Road, Tiverton Road. Anybody who's a student there will, will re remember those. Um, and we'd rehearse in there. So we had initially we had uh, I think um, we had a keyboard which was a Yamaha, one of the old Yamaha ones. Um, we had a hi hat which I'd borrowed from um, uh, 
the guy who taught me drums, who was a proper drummer um, up in Sheffield, um, a guy called John Scott. And he he was a session musician, um, worked with people like Kate Bush and Tom Robinson and Rod Stewart. So, he, um, so he'd, he'd worked there. I met him playing cricket. Um, he was a cricketer as well. So um, he'd heard about my aspirations to be a drummer from my dad because my dad used to hear me tapping on the window ledge. Um, so he'd... <laughs> <laughs> so, right. but, but did, did you have drumsticks i had drumsticks yeah no drums because my mum and dad would never let me have a kit um that was the well they, they let you have a window ledge they let me have a window ledge and then, you know, <laughs> i'm sure there's probably still dents in it now if i went back to our old house in sheffield it's that we don't live neither my mum and dad live there anymore but i'm sure there's dents in the window ledge in my bedroom i love that i love that image so what were you listening to when you were tapping on your uh, window ledge? the main things we were listening to were uh as a, there was a gang of us at school who were kind of we we battled between we'd float between punk rock so the alarm um clash um spear of destiny uh big country then we'd move on to u2 but there were other guys who were into the more heavy metal stuff and especially with sheffield's um things like people like def leppard who yeah. we'd occasionally bump into you'd, you'd bump into them in a bar somewhere in sheffield um and and yeah one of my girlfriends used to go go round to rick allen's house for tea and things like this was her claim was her claim to fame um and it, you kind of say so yes yeah, so those are the people we look at and, and i was i was talking to um i did a I did a podcast myself on mental health a, a while back, and one of the guys that did go to our school was Willie Williams, who's U2's creative designer, um, or he's creative director for them now. And he, he went to our school a few years before we did, and we used to bunk off. We were, I was telling him we used to bunk off school to go and get tickets for gigs. So I, I remember us turning, you know, we'd miss maths to go and get tickets for the alarm, um, and queue up at Sheffield City Hall to make sure we were on the front row so we could we could nick plectrums off mike and the mike and dave yeah. sharp and people um and th so it was kind of that's kind of how we were doing it and then spirit destiny we, i remember is going and my mate got to play uh stan stammer's um uh, bass for for a couple of couple of chords from from the crowd and um things like that it was just bonkers things um but you always want to be down the front we always wanted to be at the front um and they used to leave the seats in so you would come out battered and bruised but um yes yeah, so that's what we were we were listening to that kind of stuff yeah and how old, how old are you at this point then um that would have been 15 16 yeah so we were, we were about to do o levels so we'd be bunking off school to to go down and get stuff so yeah we were 80 i think the first time i saw alarm was 84 um probably saw them about three or four times every every time they played in sheffield then we'd go um and that's why we go to the the gathering still um there's a gang of us from silverdale school in sheffield who who go up and it's like a, it's like a school reunion so um sometimes we can remember what the concert was like at in Landino or prestatin or wherever sometimes we can't so <laughs> there were a few of us who were um all into the alarm and um still meet up now um who formed a band called the minifigs um, and at that point, uh, this was, uh, we, again, we, we kind of didn't write our own stuff, but we do parodies. So we had a song called, um, the blades business crew. So we, so some of us, or most of us were Sheffield United fans. Um, the blades business crew were their hooligan element. So this mm. was a, we're the blades business crew. Don't you mess with us to the tune of the wanderer. Um, <laughs> but at that point I had, uh, I had the hi-hat I'd borrowed from John Scott the proper drummer i had uh, a snare drum i'd stolen from the school music room um and a bass pedal that i'd found somewhere which was a really old one because instead of having a chain strap to pull the pull the beater down it had a leather strap 
so it must have i don't know when that was when i found that and i used to i'd put it against um a suitcase um so a beat against the suitcase because i didn't have a bass drum so that give you so it gave you quite a nice little skiffle sound um but i remember the, the first time we tried to um rehearse we found an old um amplifier which had it was like it must have been really because it was a valve amp um and it had like instead of having um a cable to to the microphone it had like a shower metal shower ring thing all the way around and we didn't have a stand so we hung it over the um over a lamp or over the light shade so it's dangling down and the bass player sang so poor old matt first first bars came in we, we, we we're going away puts his lips to this thing and he electrocutes himself <laughs> <laughs> so that's the end of um so that's the end of end of that that gig i think you just described it as his, his whole head was quivering for about two days oh, that's brilliant that's so brilliant <laughs> yeah and uh so they we decided we'd do some recording so they went into a recording studio somewhere in sheffield and i i didn't go because they they decided that they'd work it out um with a drum machine simply because it was it was the time um that it'd taken oh, yeah, drum machine anyway so they set off they recorded recorded this song which is called um it was about batman who was called um batman it was called um but it was it was actually original music but it did have did have the batman riff in there somewhere um so they decided that they'd uh, that we'd premiere this in the this was in the sixth form. I think we'd just gone into the sixth form, and there was a common room which had a stereo. So we'd premiere this song straight from the recording studio um, and the tape in the on the stereo in the in the um, in the common room. So we put it on, and it all starts, and it sounds great, and it's 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 fine. And then then the guitar solo came in, um, and the song would have been a hundred and thirty beats per minute and the guitar solo is about 175 <laughs> completely out of time perfectly in tune but completely out of time so uh that was uh the, the half well most of the sixth form listening to that going oh my i was going i had nothing to do with that <laughs> don't look at me don't look at me <laughs> nothing to do with me yeah, so, yeah did, did you ever get to ever get to gig with mini figs then no we uh, another really story was um there's a couple of people in school who were who did become professional musicians um a guy there's the hutton twins alex and dom um dom writes music now for um documentaries in france french tv um but has also produced his own albums and things and he's uh, uh he's got beautiful chateau in france that he, he bought down there and we've been down to see him and uh had a jam while he, while we we're down there and his brother alex is a, a jazz pianist who's on um he does get he does things on jazz fm but he also plays in the verdi restaurant at the albert hall when when we're allowed to uh he just plays for everybody who's on the restaurant so there's a couple of those guys and they had a band um who were due to support um what became pulp um at a school in in sheffield with so jarvis cocker was playing um i believe and we were gonna we were gonna be the support of the support um but unfortunately one of the band that we were supporting broke their arm and i think it was we think it was jarvis cock i was trying we we're trying to remember because it's it's so clouded in the in the background that it, this the, so this gig 
that we were going to play got cancelled. And I actually bumped into Jarvis Cocker and I didn't ask him <laughs> whether he broke his arm. <laughs> if, whether he broke his arm in 1998 or 1988, <laughs> sorry, before all this happened. <laughs> I, I should have done. But there we are. I should have done. But yeah. So no, we never ended up gigging, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, that would have been that would have been great. And I'd, I'd got the whole kit then. I would have had the whole kit because John had, John had said I could borrow. That's a relief. I'm <laughs> yeah. relieved to hear that you would have been playing with, not with your, although yeah. something nice, but just putting your suitcase on the stage. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I put my suitcase on the stage and uh, away we go. It would have been, yeah. yeah. I suppose pre one of those, uh, the things you sit on and tap. Yeah, but there we are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so after the minifigs, the next thing was bang around yeah. and then Pelican Sparks. So how quickly did Pelican Sparks get into the studio? Um, we went in fairly quickly. I think we done we did a couple of take couple of rehearsals and things in in people's bedrooms, and then we decided because Birmingham University at that time um, before they, they built the A thirty eight extended it and knocked down um, what what was Richbitch Studios, and there was a Gunmetal Works and things like that down there. So Richbitch Studios was down right next to the university. So we worked out that we could pay like four pounds an hour. Um, between three of us which was probably in 1988 or 1989 was quite a lot of money for a student but um it was money well spent you had to you, you went down you just they gave you a clutch for the hi-hat everything else was there pa microphones anything else you wanted so you could go and rehearse so we just we were doing um i think the end of the third year we were doing um design projects and they're really hard work because you've you've got to basically design a chemical plant, and we were doing one on hydrofluoric acid. So it, it's it, and you've got to do everything. So it gets hard work, and you're working late nights, and if you don't get up early anyway because you're a student. Um, so we'd go in and hire rich bitch for a for a day uh, or three or four hours after we'd done something, and go and have a go and have a rehearsal. Um, and Ditto had bought himself a Fostex X12 or something, one of these really old cassette, four-track cassette players. So we'd plug mm. that in as well and go and, and go and see what we sounded like. So um, you'd turn up at Rich Bitch Studios and there were, there were, I think there were 10 rehearsal rooms and then they had um, a 24-track and a... Um, 24 track analog and a digital at that time even then they had a digital recording studio um but they were way out of our price league they were they, i think it was 200 and something pounds a day for the uh, for the analog and it was 800 pounds for the digital so there was no way we were doing that so so we go in and they had these rooms there was the pink room the red room the green room and there were all sorts of different ones and some of them were uh, a bit more expensive than others because they were bigger so we'd turn up and they, they had a little post-it note board um, and you could see who booked each room every day. So you'd go along and there'd be, I might have gone down and we'll ring them up and book it. So you'd have Matt Longley or you'd have Andrew Smith um, booked in there. And then these names like Magnum, Black Sabbath, um, the charlatans <laughs> napalm death <laughs> and you'd think, whoa, okay. So there's one day I'm waiting for the, waiting for the, for the lady to give me the clutch and the phone went and she says oh just give me a second please so she picks up the phone and goes yes 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 i'll just get him so she rang on there's an internal phone to one of the studios and she goes um there's somebody on the phone for you mr osborne <laughs> oh, wow. oh, come on so as he walks as he walks as he walks out and does that then um 
I think what one's the other time we were doing yeah so we were up in one room and we could you can the soundproofing was okay but in the rehearsal side you could still hear what was going on in the next room because obviously people are people are cranking it up um and we could hear um we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it or fuzz box as they were called playing their one of their hits in the in the other room I think it was pink such sunshine something like mm, that yeah. and uh so we could hear them playing and we were we were faffing around so i went down there's a bar downstairs so i said i'll go and get a couple of pints so i walked down as you walk down there's a pool room off to the side and um uh, the lead singer from fuzzbox was playing pool with this guy and i looked at her and i could still hear them playing upstairs <laughs> and, I, and singing and i'm going i looked at her she she goes yes it is me and i i, I know it's you but i can hear you singing up there she goes um, yeah, but we're learning to mime. We're on top of the pops tomorrow, and I can mime. They can't. <laughs> and I, oh, yes. So uh, yeah. Oh, that's great. So, did you speak to Ozzy? Uh, no, I was too scared, and he didn't. Yeah. Quite, it didn't look like he wanted to speak to me either. To be honest. Actually, yeah, it's one of those again, isn't it? You should do. And uh, you know, I've had that before. Um, a few months ago, I went to took my lad, my son, to uh, watch Sam Fender, and Sam Fender was just we were walking round the back, and Sam Fender was stood by the bus, and we didn't go and say hello. We should have done, um, but my son was a bit. Uh, we don't really want to talk to him. So, but you should do, shouldn't you? You should say hi. <laughs> yeah, you've got, um, you've got to try at least. Don't yeah, you? yeah, you do. It's rare. It's rare for it to go badly, isn't it? Normally, people are decent and yeah and 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 a nice although i i mean i am now having said that recalling i i was a big fan of the of a band called the bolshoi uh and uh yeah their singer trevor tanner was he was a bit of a hero of me of mine growing up i was really into them and uh and then a year a few years later i was at camden palace and he was stood at the bar i was oh my god it's trevor tanner but Blimey. So I went over and said, all right, Trev, <laughs> having a chat with it. I was a big, big fan of his. Never got to see you play because I was I was too young, but I got bought all your records and blah, blah, blah. It's really nice to meet you. And he just looked at me and went, were you going to buy me a pint then? <laughs> oh, no. He was, he was really like just arsy about it. Yeah. And uh, which was, yeah. Oh, that's a shame. That's a shame. That's a shame. No, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No. <laughs> yeah. no. No, if it said please, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe it would. <laughs> uh, that was a Bolshoi joke. That was a, a a niche Bolshoi joke right there for any Bolshoi fans listening. Well, there won't be many of them, I don't think, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not editing that out. I'm keeping the Bolshoi keep, joke. Keep in. Yeah, of course you will. Of course you will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a great place to be. That rehearsal, rehearsal studios, and that. How how serious had you started to take making music by that point? We'd we'd pulled together probably seven or eight songs by then, so we we were starting to thinking, well, we could we could record something. Um, we obviously we were all doing chemical engineering again, so it, that's quite a hard course to do and quite time intensive. Even even when you finish it, you've still got stuff to do. Um, so I think we'd all we we were at that point thinking, yeah, we we might at some point do something but you've always got in the back of your mind we'll get we're going to go off and um and find work or do something else when when you got through um but we kind of kept at it because you're starting to get better at writing stuff um you're getting better at playing it together you kind of worked out between yourselves how how things happen and you've, you you get a rapport i think you get a rapport together of how um how you're going to sound and how how you want things to sound um 
and you kind of, as you get better you think oh hang on this is okay and if we could have found a singer <laughs> then we may have we may have done something because you know the musically it was it sounded it was starting to sound okay and you you start to think about structures and and that sort of thing so um yeah we we, we were getting we were rehearsing more and more um simply because we were working more so we wanted more time out um so you, you kind of thinking yeah we, we could do something we'd never really found the because we didn't really have a singer it was difficult to we tended to what we tended to do was record bass uh, well no sorry guitar drums and um some and the keyboards with some sort of guide vocals over the top on a different track um and then then go back and overdub it afterwards so playing live we could never had that we never had the full sound that you'll get when you're recording which was which is a bit of a shame because of the because the numbers of us when we when we'd finish uni and we went back to rich which we used to go back occasionally and just for a weekend or or so every so often and we'd invite somebody in as well so we had we did we did some with some tracks with a with a saxophonist on which never really quite worked because i think we didn't quite work out whether the uh, musically where it should fit in and what the, what the you know are we in e flat are we in c or where where are we <laughs> and it kind of confused us a little bit um <laughs> didn't matter as a drummer of course that didn't matter i was like well what are they on about um so it's uh, <laughs> sorry I'm, I'm 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 dissing drummers there but i'm only doing it as a joke <laughs> did you um despite the fact that you didn't have a you know like a, a, a regular singer did you send your demos out anywhere did you send your recordings to try and get sort of label interest yeah we did we did we did try and post them off uh we did post off i think can't you see went somewhere uh i can't remember who we sent it down to you you kind of find these um in those days there was no internet so you're trying to work out where where sony music were or where um uh so i think it might have gone to banquet or somebody like that because they were one of i think they were the one of the ones that were around that the, well they still are aren't they as a as a shop but um not as a label i think it might have gone to those so you kind of pick it up off the the back of a record and send it out um so yeah so get the tape and stick it in the padded envelope and off it goes <laughs> and then never hear anything ever again um, but yeah so yeah you try and uh i think subsequently can you remember how you packaged the tape did you kind of spend a lot of time putting a sleeve together and writing your thanks list and... there was a thanks list um i don't i think we kind of in those days in the chemical engineering department we had a dot matrix printer so it was probably printed up on a dot matrix printer um it probably typed up in there um and then probably yeah thanks list to to various people who um probably had not a lot to do so there'd be our roadie dave um and the things like things like that so you do and then you put silly little things on there um like who who was the record company and i can't remember what we do it's be it'd be so reference to somebody that we we knew or liked um so you'd put that on um and send it away but yeah um or somebody would draw something there'd be somebody we knew who drew who draw something and then we'd try and put it out and print it did you feel like you really wanted something to happen from it or for, from that or were you just kind of doing it because you felt you ought to i think we at that stage we were doing it because we felt we ought to i think later on you start thinking back and going well should we try it again and do something more? Um, but by then we'd all gone off to, um, Paul was working in India um, for a bit and with a chemical plant. I would, I'd gone on a year out playing cricket um, down in Western Australia. And then, so when we came back, um, 
we'd kind of meet up again and record stuff and then we'd send it to each other um because we were we were starting to be able to send tapes around we'd all got a recorder so you you'd be able to do that um i think we were getting to the point nearly where mini disc was coming out so you could do it do it differently with that cds had certainly come out and i think mini disc was coming later on a little bit later on mini disc was coming out so you could kind of do things start to do things remotely i mean now it's easy um you can obviously record stems of things and send them off to people and they can come send you bits back and you've, you've got it all there on the computer but um in those days it was tapes and stuff and paul had sent chords over and um songs he demoed and you'd you'd try and work on them and maybe even I'd, i think i remember recording over tracks of his on guitar on on four track tape uh from the stereo mix uh, and things like that to try and see what see what came out of it but obviously um you're never going to quite quite go anywhere they uh ditto and paul eventually joined a band called top banana who did do some gigging uh doing covers around uh liverpool um so they were playing up in um i think the lobel club and places like that they they did quite so they did quite a bit of stuff um around there and we you know we went and recorded in mad dog studios which were up in um up in d side as well so we we got up there and did some more stuff so we'd occasionally meet up for a weekend and go and do things and, and we did meet a couple of times down at Port, uh, Ditto's house uh, in in Buckinghamshire, um, and you'd go and record. We'd spend a whole weekend there, record the first record. Think we'll record one song um, and get some get some stuff down on that. And you you record for one day. The first day would be fine. Then you go out and get platted on the second day. <laughs> <laughs> you got a hangover, and you think, well, hang on. So it was kind of a, a kind of a meet up and something to keep you keep you guys interested together um and and sort of rekindle old friendships i suppose as well just to keep you going um and i think all of us still right now um i've i went up to see paul um last year he's in chester um and we we got the old tapes out and then a guitar and started recording stuff again um just play the old songs and put <laughs> put new takes on them so yeah it's quite quite good fun um but yeah it's all it does it, yeah you, you kind of yeah to answer your question yeah you you always think that you can do something and I, I still now listen to demo tapes i was lucky enough um i got involved with a band called nothing but thieves um just one of those bizarre things that happen where you bump into somebody in a pub um and now they're they're hopefully going to sell out the o2 next year if we're allowed to go back to things but sort of seeing them in a pub up in camden um and you listen i got invited to listen to some of their demo tapes from the from the previous album and you start thinking hey, well, hang on a minute yeah they used to do they're doing the same sort of things that we do some of their songs you know their, their songs eventually get produced and turned into something really good and the singer connor's brilliant um he's he's got the rate a fantastic range but you kind of think well yeah that i could have done that if, if we'd have had the right sort of things could we have done could we have gone that way and we're not um you know you you start thinking that don't you it's just a yeah i could have gone some we could have done something had given the right wind and the, and that kind of thing but because you, you listen back to the tapes and go they're not too bad and if we'd have had a proper production and we'd spent some more time on rewriting things and, and getting it right yeah you could have done it and other things so, some songs even even when i write things now you go well that's that's clicked even though it's i've not done a lot with it it's it's clicked and it sounds okay um yeah it then needs more performance but it's actually as a song it's okay it can stand up uh 
uh, as you were counting the sort of story from university, university didn't spend, spell the end for the band. And in fact, m- music making has been a constant for you. Yeah, it has. Yeah. I mean, um, we, you recount the stories of, of what, what happened to Pelican Sparks in, in Rich Bitch Studios. Cause there's, there's other ones with Napalm Death and me having a drumming battle with their drummer. Um, he'd, he was obviously, <laughs> he was obviously bored with their song Suffer or whatever. Going, and that's the end of it. So you have a drumming battle with him and it, he was, yeah, trying to match my incompetence, I think. But um, yeah, so music, music's <laughs> been a constant, and I think you, you, I've always been going to gigs, um, meet up with good friends all the time to go to to various gigs, and we'll we'll pick a band and and usually follow them around a little bit. So we still go to the Alarm, obviously. You two uh, followed those followed them those guys for years, um, and now Nothing But Thieves. We've all picked up on Nothing But Thieves, so we all go because because. Yeah, occasionally we do get invited backstage with them, but um, you know, we go out for a beer afterwards um, and and keep it going. But from a musical point of view, I use it as a stress release and and something to just lose yourself in. Um, and you know, you listen to it back again, and I don't think I've ever finished a song. I don't think because I always want to change something after I've done it. But it, it's that. Um, and and then if we go back with Paul and uh, we sit down and we, we'll chat about what we did and maybe just get the guitar out and start playing again. Um, so it's always been a constant, and I think it's it's something that from a you know, my project in mental health now is it's a thing that um, helps people with their their mental health. It's a, it's a form of expression. It's also people relate to songs as well. They come out, oh yeah, I can I can hear the the passion in that song it re- relates to a point in my life and and the same sort of thing with with all the music that we've listened to and created it it, it defines a point in your life um so you know the alarm we go back to the 1980s um when we were growing up and we'll, we'll all go off and and relive that i suppose as, as a gang of mates um as though we were back in the 1980s um and can't yeah we can't drink for as long and stay up for as long as we used to be able to but we we certainly yeah. give it a try so yeah i think it's a it is a, a full uh, stress relief and, a, and you just disappear out the out the trials of, of everyday life and go and, and go and write a song about it or or anything that comes up yeah, yeah it's yeah. kind of it's kind of inescapable that the connectivity that music brings whether that's in listening or playing is just so positive isn't it yeah it's so so vital it is and it's it's also um you know i'd I'd recommend anybody go and try and pick up a guitar or a set of drums or anything and try and create something musically um because it is a it is something that just it it bonds you guys together as if you're playing with a band you bond together and you've always got that i know bands fall out and do whatever but you've always got that connection of, of stuff you've created together um but also you've got that it's the other way as well in listening and going to gigs they they kind of define that time so you know um bunking off school to go and get tickets for you two at Allen Road and and then going um and remembering what happened that evening um and then you go on and there's so it it picks points in your life um that gig and this gig and then um or the song you've written or the song you've heard or listened to it's just it's um yeah it's um brilliant for people's mental health and without it i think we'd all be lost yeah because it is really important to stay connected to sort of past versions of yourself we've talked we've talked about this before with somebody on the podcast but but um st- uh, revisiting points in your past that were significant for you and, st- and and keeping some kind of connection or attachment to them is really important i think 
yeah it is um you you move on um from your from a day-to-day point of view you move on but you you go back and revisit it and think yeah, okay i was at this point and you know it can it can be tied around the, the birth of kids uh, marriages um relationships all these things and but those points before you can remember and uh, give you a happy point um to a certain extent and also there's a, there's a sense of achievement as well it, you know we talk a lot on some of the mental health podcasts that i do about looking back at what you've achieved over the years and and whether or not you've you've made yourself into a recording artist or you've played loads of gigs to hundreds of thousands of people you've you've achieved something and you've got a you've got a record of that through having written music and, and having a recording of it somewhere along the line there's a point there and you can go back yeah okay i wrote that one about such and such and it might not come across in the in the song itself what it was about but you've got that in the back of your mind um as to where it started and it might just be one line that's then fed into all, all sorts of other things um so you know can't you see which you know will get played at the end of this podcast was i think written um around 1989 by paul he wanted something that um he could sing while he was playing guitar um and then we played along that and it had several loads of incarnations but it to us it's kind of something that that came there and then a lot of it he he overdubbed it while he was working in india so i'm sure it throws him back to um to what he was doing in india and then he moved back to altrincham and finished off other bits decided he didn't like that bit and and there's a there's a harpy type guitar in it which um which he recorded but it's so those kind of things would take on uh, a whole new meaning um in your own life and 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 those you know if, if anybody ever listened to it then probably theirs as well but it yeah it's it's something you've achieved and it's there um and i think that's that's a good thing whether it's whether it's been listened to by thousands of people or not is kind of for me is immaterial in the end it's it's a piece of piece of work that you've created and it's and it's always there and you can go back to it and think right okay i remember where that came from how that was built um and yeah it gave you pleasure when you were doing it as well so it, it releases that back again I think it. I think what you've just said leads on really nicely to asking about six feet from the spotlight and the work that you're doing there, because um, you've you've mentioned your me- the mental health project and that's uh, and that's the name of it. But um, how does that link to what you were just talking about? And, and could you just say a little bit more? Yeah. About so that? Um, you know, six feet from the spotlight was something that um, I started about three years ago, three and a half years ago, and we look after crew. Uh, or try and look after crew in the creative industries and their mental health and well-being, and that really came from. I'd got sent down to work on Harry Potter um, with work produ- providing trackway on the last films, um, and one of the guys, unfortunately, there took his own life um, a few years later. Um, and some of us decided we ought to do something about that because the 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 crew industry in all of the creative industries is a a tough life. It's a brilliant life, um, but people people fall out of it because there's long hours. They're away from home a lot. Obviously, we're touring um, or working in on location in films um and tv um usually freelance so at the same time this is where the nothing but thieves king kicks in as well um and and that was they were they were kind of the catalyst or their crew were Stu guy called Stuart Jew who's their guitar tech and does tour managing and a bit of stage managing for them as well um and Stuart I'd I'd recorded a video with nothing but thieves a friend of mine had leukemia and his mum was a fan it was a big nothing but thieves fan so they, they agreed i emailed their um manager and she replied immediately saying yeah they'll record a video of of um best wishes for him and all this sort of stuff while he's in hospital having a bone marrow transplant and so i sat in the sat in the uh in the 
room with them in Cardiff and um, they they uh, they recorded the video and then we were talking about mental health and Stu must have remembered it I think and um, put something out on Twitter a few months later saying does anybody know anything about mental health I want I've got an idea to help crew so I messaged him back and immediately he rang me and uh, we we talked about how you would support crew. Um, and I just by sheer coincidence, I was on holiday at the time with my brother-in-law, who's a mental health nurse. Uh, he's a psycho, uh, psychiatric nurse up in Manchester um, and runs the children and adolescent mental health services up there. And uh, so we set up Six Feet from the Spotlight to help the crew. Um, so it's gone from strength to strength. Um, we Now we got a grant from the film and TV charity uh, a few months ago to train people to be well-being facilitators on set so they somebody who's there as a third party to look after the crew make sure they're okay from a mental health point of view but also to try and get the producers and help the producers meet their duty of care to people's mental health while they're working um so it's going from strength to strength we've been on a couple of productions um unfortunately a couple of them got pushed back because of covid really um but we're now getting somewhere with that um we're training crew to look after their mental health and also the mental health of the people around them um so we can there's people doing mental health first aid there's a program that i can train which is which is i act which is about managing mental health and so it's going really well and um yeah getting it's been in been a labor of love i think covid has kind of been a blessing for it a little bit for the project not for not for people's mental health by any stretch of imagination because we've been able to get to talk to people that we would never normally have got to talk to um because they've not been working so while they've not been working we've been able to contact them and get get some leeway um and then obviously covid has made it a lot worse um unfortunately um and and things with black lives matter as well that made it a lot worse in the industry so there's even more need for it now um so yeah um over a period of time hopefully six feet from the spotlight will will grow um i would learn nothing better than to switch off six feet from the spotlight because we weren't needed but i don't think that's going to happen in the next in the next few years so yeah so it's it's going well um it's all non for not profit and um what have, those, what have those initial experiences like being seeing it come together on a, on an actual set how open have you found people in terms of engaging with it um it varies um you find that there's people who have had experience of mental health issues are straight there to talk to you um some people are a little bit more reticent until they get used to you being there or talking to you um there's still things that go off on set that shouldn't happen um and we've kind of occasionally had to seek advice on on what to do um but it's been generally it's been really really eye-opening and people people really warm to some having somebody there that they can talk to that isn't going to judge them on and not offer them the next role that they're going to get so they can offer advice point them in the right direction somebody else to talk to um and they they work that that so that's the kind of thing that they they thrive on in the end um so we've kind of built up an evidence bank that it, it is working and it it does work um and the guys the guys and girls on there appreciate people being there and in fact on one production um the lady that was working on it had to leave fairly uh fairly abruptly at the end of the production and they they were campaigning to get her back on there <laughs> so uh, the crew were um campaigning to get her back there so it's it's been received really well and i think as people people understand why you're there and what you're there for um they'll they'll get it more and more um 
but that everybody we've spoken to um this is the strange thing because the the people that work i found the people that work in the industry are, are great most 99.9 percent .9 of them are absolutely fantastic but there's just this undercurrent somewhere in the culture and how things work that 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 really drives people to to distraction and and really creates issues for people um but they're they're, they're all if you anybody individually they're fantastic so it's just a changing that culture of we must get this done um and that kind of thing so it's brilliantly innovative and 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 and, and really impressive i'm i'm wondering um how the work that you've been doing within productions uh, in the screen industries how that how that might translate into working say for example within a like a touring production for a band yeah so what we've what we've been thinking about we've left it a little bit to um the, the music industry really is in a um 90 odd percent of people who are crew are, are, are male in the in that there's um there's a group who are now called um music industry therapists who are working on uh, a touring manual which is going to come out um so we've we've I've spoken with Tamsin, who's running that, uh, and she got she put she put up a crowd funder for for getting money to produce this touring manual book for people about mental health, touring and mental health, and uh, it, it, she got it funded. And then Melvin Ben came in and said, "No, I'm paying for it." So he's paid for everything. Oh, so he's man. he's sorted that out. Um, music support as well. So we've kind of stayed a little bit at the side in that. Um, and what we want but what we want to do um and we've kind of i've been talking to um the production services association and a few other people who are involved with um with that kind of thing is to to talk about making it systematic that mental health is looked after and that there's training available for for the guys when they go out so they're they're able to spot um issues with the crew so you know they're nothing but thieves story really is they're ten guy, effectively ten guys go on tour. Five of the band and five of the crew, um, and they look out for each other as a as a family. And I think if you can teach them how to how to spot the signs that one of them might be struggling um, early and know what to do with the not what know what to do about that, it's diff it's more difficult in a touring environment because obviously you, you you know you might be in the UK and people can nip home occasionally or if the touring schedule allows they'll get a day off here and there so when they get out to the us and they're out on their own for for 10 weeks uh or you know three months maybe longer and they're in a bus um and not doing anything that you kind of want to do something so we're trying to work on we're, we're we've kind of left it while um while they're doing the touring manual and then we'll see where we can fit in with some extra training once that's happened um and we're building it we've built the training now um so we've been doing that for um five people this week um and we've got more people in the next few weeks to train as the well-being facilitators in the film industry so it's what we're going to do is just tweak that around to to the music industry and go through uh hopefully go through music industry therapists and maybe music support and say look you could try this um and maybe have somebody on the bigger tours um i was I was really lucky that, um, and this is nothing to do with me having done a podcast with Willie Williams, but on the last U2 tour, I, a friend of mine ducked out of the of the gig um, and I'd gone red zone because I've got a dodgy hip, so I didn't want to, I want to be able to move around, sit where I need to or do whatever. So I'd, I'd gone red zone, took my son, who was 16 at the time, um, thought I'll go and get a beer disappeared to get a beer came back and one of the guys was talking to to my lad because he's obviously different demographic to most of you two fans um 
and said, uh, does he want to come backstage? And I went, yeah, well, Joe, do you want to go backstage? And he goes, yeah, 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 I'll go backstage. And so so mm-hmm. he was about to be whisked off and the crew came out and went, are you his dad? He went, yeah, yeah. He said, well, you come back with me as well. So um, went backstage with um, and had a talk with Jake Berry in Dallas, who's Edgy's guitar tech, which was fun. Absolutely, it was my dream, my dream wow. come true. Joe's going, oh, yeah, there's some guitars there. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, and, uh, but we uh, had a chat with jake um barry who's the production director um and the number of people that they have on that tour you need to have somebody who's there to look after them i think there's there's sort of 80 crew um doing the tv units and all this kind of stuff 30 trucks or whatever it is that they use and then there's there's probably more there's more with the bands there's about 140 people going around on that on that tour so they need to have somebody there who's looking after them um but they having spoken to willie afterwards about it um they do look after, look out for each other, and obviously you two are quite good at um, setting up things for their crew. They understand their crew, um, the value that the crew do bring to what they do, because without them there is no show. And I think that's the point that those bands that um, appreciate their crew and use their crew to to help them with the, some of the creative process on tour are the ones that I think that have probably survived a little bit longer. Um, I'm that's my view not i have no evidence to say that that's the case but when you actually look at it i think they they are the that uh, understanding your crew and how, the value that they bring to you is is a big thing and i think that's where that's where some that somebody like you two is already doing what we think we should be doing but perhaps not n- not perfectly um but they from what willie was saying they've got uh they they do look after the crew and i think you've got to that's a testament and nothing but thieves certainly look after their crew they 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 really are looking after their crew so especially because they've they've had their own mental health problems or at least connor the lead singer did um which is all over his interviews he's, he's very open about it. and the second album was pretty much about that so um yeah there's it's something that needs to be considered again um and we'll push we're going to push for that um through through our channels to make sure that people are looked after um especially when they're freelance um yeah yeah brilliant it's quite it's quite a challenge isn't it because you're trying to um bat to a certain extent battle against a pretty well-established culture that's kind of built up around the kind of um the sort of myth of rock and roll to some extent aren't you yes yeah you are and um there's no reason why you can't continue to have rock and roll and and live that lifestyle um i think that one of the first conversations we had with Stu um about what what he his idea was for for looking after mental health in crew and it was we don't want 60 year old doris telling us not to do this drink that drug that this that and the other he's going i said i know i get that but it's you need to you've got to look after you after you after yourselves in the end and when it does go wrong you need somewhere to go to but you also ought to be looking out for yourself so yeah there's a there's a change in a little bit of a change in culture but i think you know it's happening in football it's happening in 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 major sport um is that people are starting to talk about it and i think the more and more that that happens the more people will talk about it um and as people people normalize and and destigmatize mental health then it will change you can still have the rock and roll lifestyle by all stretch of the imagination um and that will happen um but yeah don't don't end up um in a 
in a hole in the ground effectively um in the at the end of it enjoy yourself but nowhere nowhere to stop or get somebody to help you stop yeah well m- just moving away from that what are your cr- creative ambitions as your kind of uh work ambitions and uh but, but what are your creative ambitions now i'm going to keep on writing stuff um i think i've written about five songs over lockdown um occasionally they end up on spotify um occasionally they've been bought on Amazon and I've absolutely no idea who's bought them or what they've done um so I think from my point of view I'm going to keep writing stuff and if one day and if they're on Spotify and somebody listens to it and enjoys it then then that's great I'm trying at the minute to we were thinking about the crew um and how we could assist the crew and you know I'm sure an artist or that my my feeling is that artists wouldn't want to give up their creative stuff necessarily um and i've got stuff that i've written that could somebody could take and i'd love somebody to nick it and turn it into a single or something that made money for for crew um whether any of it's good enough is another question but if i again i think a couple of things that we we'd done eventually you could do that something with and maybe if the if the sentiments right and the right people was playing on it you could do that but otherwise i'm just going to keep keep writing stuff that i listen to and enjoy creating um and will frame um frame what i've done through through my life um and if other people listen to it, my mum likes it that's fine if it's, <laughs> if anybody brilliant. else does brilliant <laughs> Well, let's put some let's put some links to 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 that stuff in the show notes as well, so people can uh, people can check it out. Well, I, I've just seen that we're about to roll around to the hour mark. Um, there is a, there is a, 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 a an infrequent feature called Ben's tangential question. I'm just going to ask Ben if he has a tangential question before we wrap up the episode. I think it I think it's disappeared off the map. Really, I was just I was just thinking when you were talking. This is not very tangential at all. But when when you were talking about being creative now do you draw a line back to that you know 15 16 year old matt going and and bunking off and getting those tickets and going to those sort of first concerts oh yeah definitely it's um if i hadn't been doing that i don't think i'd have ever been wanted to be creative um i'd always as a kid i always wrote little stories and things like that um uh which which were usually sci-fi type things um so there's always been a creative side to me somewhere um even though i'm an you know an engineer and what have you but you yeah i always hark back to those and you start thinking back about what you were doing there um i've got ideas for a film script but that might be getting above my station about what what we used to get up to um and obviously dramatize it quite a bit more about what we got up to around uh, when we were when we were kids um but you know and try and frame it in some other way but yeah that's a long time I, I, I might be way above my state my create my creative juices there for uh, for writing stuff yeah um, writing stuff about heat exchanges and uh, distillation columns is is a bit different from trying to write comedy or or something something descriptive so um although i don't you know i've done chemical engineering for a while now because of six feet from the spotlight and uh, i was in commercial stuff before which is even more boring um but yeah <laughs> so well, look, Matt, thank you so much for coming on um, Songs from Padded Envelope and, and sharing your stories. It's been brilliant to talk to you and the, the very best of luck with Six Feet from the Spotlight. 
Um, it's a it's a fantastic idea, and the fact that it's growing in the way that you've described is really encouraging and exciting. So, um, yeah, it's been great to talk to you. Could we just finish off, please, with you introducing the song that people are going to hear now? Yeah, so this is a song by Pelican Sparks. I play drums on it. Fortunately, you won't hear me sing on this, and it's called Can't You See? Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thank you.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 